Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, I'm Matt Risby and uh, joining me as always, not via the miracle of satellite technology but in the same room for once, is the man with one red shoe, Ed Davis. How are you doing? Is it alright? Good, I'm glad to be here for the miracle of uh, aviation, which is less of a miracle than it was 70 years ago but still kind of miraculous. There are probably some people in Suffolk still amazed by it um but yes we are we find ourselves in celebratory mood uh why is that ed uh because this is the 100th episode of shot reverse shot wow that is something i didn't think would happen um but we have made it we started this podcast uh like what four years ago this christmas yeah because we we started did we start with an end of year i think we, we did. did yeah yeah 2011 um, and we have managed to spread it out to 100 episodes, of 50 of which have been recorded in the last year. So yeah. um, we have kind of gathered pace and uh, a kind of more notable air of professionalism in the last year, which is nice. Yeah, when you say that uh, you didn't expect it to happen, for me, I expected it to happen because I think once we figured out the technology of recording over the Atlantic, but maybe not as quickly as this. Like, I think we would have been eight years into the run, but uh, the Mm. increased speed has helped it a lot. And I would say that had I continued the editing of the show, because Ed took over that about a year ago, there's a kind of correlation between Ed editing the show and the amount, the input going up, because I am pretty lax uh, when it comes to kind of stitching this shit together. So we thought we would, uh, for 100th episode, um, open it up. Uh, to you, the listeners, we've been asking for your questions the last couple of weeks now, and you have responded in, uh, I don't know, what's the bare minimum qualification for a drove? Uh, at least six. At least six. We have had at least six questions <laughs> um, from various people, listeners, nice uh, nice folk uh, on the interweb, um, some of whom we know, some of whom I have no idea who you are, um, but I'm convinced you're human and not kind of uh, weird spam bots, uh, hopefully. Um, and we're going to answer those questions tonight. So, uh, you know, strap yourselves in uh, to have your kind of minds blown uh, by some serious truth bombs mm-hmm. that we're going to drop on your face. Um, let's just fucking get into it. Let's do it. Let's go. What have we got first? The first question is from Simon Jenkins. And the question is, what's your favourite cinema? Well, Ed, um, my favourite cinema is... And I'm sure many people in the North of England will uh, share this. Uh, the Hyde Park Picture House in Leeds, which mm. is a uh, very old school, uh, uh, very cold to wait outside in the queue because they have no kind of foyer. <laughs> uh, you just have to freeze your tits off outside. Um, and um, it's just got a great atmosphere. It's a great kind of uh, atmospheric venue to watch a film. We watched The Artist there, didn't we? Which was a great venue for that film. We did. And that was, I think, probably for me one of the top five cinematic experiences I've ever had because it was a great venue and it was a lovely film. I was there. Yep, yeah. that, was, that was a big part of it. Um, that was before we'd even started doing this podcast, wasn't it? It sure was, because or... the artist was the artist was uh, our first film of the year in that first mm, episode. Yeah, so maybe it was after one of the failed pilots. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. Yeah, Jesus, yeah. Uh, we did have a failed pilot. So this is probably episode 101 in reality, because... 
yeah. If we included all the episodes that failed or had some kind of technical hitch, then we'd be at like 190, I reckon. <laughs> we did have a Wibnow podcast that failed that three times. Three times. Halloween podcast twice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not great, but have you got have you got any other favourite cinemas outside of the Hyde Park Picture House? Uh, I mean, Hyde Park is, is is fantastic. I really, at least for pure sentimental reasons, I do love the showroom. I worked there for three years. Even before I worked there, it was just a great place to go. I really enjoyed visiting there, and I've got lots of great memories of it. Um, I think, in just in pure aesthetics, the Hyde Park Picture House wins. Um, I do have a slight fondness for the Odeon in Sheffield not because it's particularly good cinema because I like the tenacity involved in apparently trying to build a cinema around the edges of a car park mm-hmm. and let's not be around the bush the Odeon cinema in Sheffield is probably my least favourite cinema <laughs> uh, in the world but I'll always go to it because it's cheaper than all other cinemas mm-hmm. and it's I can walk to it and there's a chance you'll end up in a row that has a single seat in it because they couldn't fit any of us in. Yeah, it's a peculiar quirk of brutalist architecture. <laughs> I would recommend anyone in Sheffield um, check it out. Following on from the favourite cinema question, we have a uh, um, question from uh, Rory, friend of the show. Um, what is your favourite cinema snack? Uh, what do you take into the cinema with you when you're off to see a film? What, what do you have, Ed? Uh, when... I was at Sixth Form College, uh, a group of friends uh, of mine, we would always get together and go on what are known as blind cinema trips, which is essentially that we'd just go into Leicester, walk to the uh, Odeon or the cinema, whichever one we wanted to go to, or sometimes the Phoenix Arts Centre, and just see whatever film was starting next, mm-hmm. um, which was something that actually more or less works most times. It shouldn't. We should have seen some terrible films, but we ended it. It usually worked. And our favourite thing to do was to go into the uh, Asda, directly opposite, and load up our bags with whatever stuff we could get in. So for me, my favourite would be uh, watermelon. <laughs> watermelon. <laughs> Which, yeah, that is an s- old school cinema snack. Yeah. Managed to sneak that in one time and it was... Uh, part of what was good about it was the thrill of managing to sneak something so massive in uh, but it was it was a nice snack it's not that's that seems like a wildly impractical mm-hmm. kind of cinema snack and also messy yep yeah, it, well, that it was I thought when you said blind cinema trip I thought you were talking about the very little known practice of pretending to be blind <laughs> because when you go to the cinema and you are blind uh, your companion who describes it to you gets it for free yeah so I thought maybe you meant that because that is that is frowned upon. It is frowned upon, and we unfortunately never struck on that gold mine. Mm, yeah, because it. Well, that's kind of what Orange Wednesdays is for now. <laughs> um, getting your kind of uh, your companion uh, into the cinema for free. My uh, cinema snack of choice, straight up yogurt covered raisins. Mm. Um, it's silent, I yep. mean, so it's got a practical application, <laughs> um, and it's delicious. Yeah. Which uh, you know is the first thing I look for in a snack. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's you know no movement, no movement for me on that one. It has to be that popcorn and jog on. I um I worked in a cinema in the concession stand, <laughs> and uh, the shit they don't sell, they put back in a bag and reheat the next day. Yeah, and the amount of hands that have been in that, and I didn't do a food hygiene certificate when I worked there. I don't think anyone else did, and I was probably the least disgusting people that personally worked on that stand. Uh, so yeah, if you ever kind of ate popcorn. Uh, from Sydney World, Ipswich, circa 2000, you've probably got hepatitis A to C. 
um, <laughs> at, at like best. Um, yeah, so that's why I don't eat that kind of popcorn. What next question have we got, Ed? The next question we have is uh, from Neil McWilliam, my old uh, radio host when I was at Sheffield University and also the guy who founded the blog I still write today, a mighty fine blog, uh, is what film most angers you? Uh, I have an answer for this straight away. It's not a film that angers me because it's a bad film. It's a film that literally left me seething with anger after watching it. It's the film uh, Dear Zachary, A Letter to a Son from His Father. Uh, I may have butchered the subtitle there. But <laughs> the title is definitely... The Letter from Iwo Jima to Zachary <laughs> from His Father. And an Unknown Woman. Yes. Uh, which is a, a documentary about... I won't go too far into it, but um, it's a, a documentary made by a guy whose best friend was murdered by the woman that he was dating and the woman was pregnant with his child. And uh, the, the documentary is about the guy's relationship with the, the dead man. And he, it starts out as being wanted to make a film for the unborn child to basically say, you know, this is what your dad was like. He was, he was, he was a really good man and everyone liked him. And then it becomes about the weird because uh, the woman who killed him was Canadian. So she went back to Canada and they're trying to extradite her. And it is a film that has a lot of moments in it that are just really uh, angering. It's the sort of film where I would recommend everyone watch it once. Mm. I think that's all anyone will ever want to watch it because it's so upsetting and angering. Uh, but it's a film that uh, is one of those films that I remember watching for the first time and just being completely devastated by. And there are parts of it that just really uh, made me furious. That is, I mean, mine, mine, it's not so much a single film that angers me. It's a kind of, uh, a kind of trend in films. And it is the trend uh, in which... Kids' films are churned out with very little thought um, and uh, effort going into them and are kind of brushed under the carpet with the excuse, oh, it's just a kid's film. Mm -hmm. Um, As if being aimed at children is an excuse to be rubbish. And it really makes me angry when I see something like Alvin and the Chipmunks or um, uh, kind of... uh, What's the, the space chimps or you know, the really kind of tawdry, rubbish, badly animated um, kind of cash grabs that go out for kids. And it makes me more angry when, you know, you speak to parents who have taken their kids to see it and you say, oh, was it good? And they say, well, it's just a kid's film. It's a bit crap. It's just like, well, I, don't, I wouldn't accept that. That's, mm. that's not very nice. You're basically saying, well, it's all right. My kids are stupid. <laughs> They'll enjoy it. And, you know, it's just it's the most shameless commercial aspect of a film that they will make a film for a target audience who don't have any critical faculties but have enough to recognise a film they will grow to love forever, like a Disney film mm-hmm. or, um, you know, Pixar film or, you know, a film that's actually good for children because um, you don't forget those films. Yeah. But, you know, no one in 10 years' time is going to say, oh, Earth to Echo was really my favourite film of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to watch G-Force all the time <laughs> yeah yeah. I loved Cats and Dogs that was a great film and just those those kind of films are, or uh, Garfield A Tale of Two Kitties mm-hmm. um, you know those kind of films where if it was aimed at adults it probably wouldn't get made or it would have to go through a much more rigorous uh, examination process unless Adam Sandler was in it yeah um, but yeah that angers me a lot um, because kids get a raw deal I think, and kids' films or films 
because uh, that's the thing there is no such thing as a kids film because mm. kids don't pay to go to the cinema no. there are family films uh, you know I very rarely see it, you know, a group of five year old children in the cinema on their own <laughs> they're always accompanied by adults um, and if that's the case then films should be aimed at a whole family and I don't mean squeezing a couple of stupid jokes in that the kids clearly won't get mm-hmm. just to keep the mums and dads interested I mean making a film that a family can sit down and enjoy because it's a well-rounded, well-thought-out, well-written, well-produced piece of entertainment. Yeah, I mean that. This is probably a subject for a, for another ep, for a full episode, but it kind of gets into the same area of something we've discussed off air in the last day. The idea of you know turning your brain off to watch a film, like a film saying that you shouldn't criticize a film because it's not meant to be smart, mm. which is kind of the uh, films aimed at teenagers and adults version it's the same argument but you just aim at a different age group and both of them are, are ridiculous arguments to make because mm. you should children should get entertainment that is and ent- genuinely entertaining but also in some way quite nourishing something mm-hmm. that maybe teaches them values or that perhaps has a decent message and that actually is entertaining and a lot of the time it's just a case of just plopping them in front of any old shit. <laughs> Brightly coloured, flashing images. Yeah. It's basically the equivalent of jangling your keys in front of a cat. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's just it's just not good for anyone. So yeah, stop it. <laughs> uh, what's our favourite film scores, asks Jack. Uh, yes, Jack um, uh, Roden, who uh, asked me this in the pub not long before we started recording. Classic. Um, my favourite... I think I'd probably have to go for uh, Clint Mansell's soundtrack to uh, The Fountain, mm-hmm. which is a film that I like a lot, and a large part of why I like it is tied up in the score. I think it's a score that's incredibly grand and huge and epic and really kind of captures the scale of the story it's telling, a story that spans time and space, and it's one of those ones that really you can listen to separate from the film and it still works i used to use it a lot as bed music when i would do radio shows oh i thought you meant bed music because nope. when the ladies come around no well that would be pretty epic yeah. um, <laughs> but it used to be good music to play in the background of radio show because no matter whatever shit you were talking it sounded pretty important if you had the, the fountain soundtrack playing in the background yeah yeah i can imagine it adds it kind of like a weight of of kind of existential gravitas yeah um for me um, it might seem like a bit of an odd choice, but it's uh, the score for the straight story, um, yeah. which is uh, I say an odd choice because um, it's a score by Angelo Badalamenti, who is um, David Lynch's kind of regular composer. But it is fairly. Uh, hang on, if it's atypical, does that mean like the opposite of typical? Yeah. Right, it's fairly atypical <laughs> of his scores. It's not atypical score. It's no, atypical. It's atypical. Ah, oh, now I'm confused. It's 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 atypical of his of his normal scores. Um, uh, it's uh, a lot of very simple little guitar lines that kind of repeat over and over, with a kind of viola that kind of comes in. Uh, it might be a violin. Who knows? One of those stringed instruments that's uh, tuned that way. Um, but I just really love it, and it's uh, it kind of whenever I'm on any car journey. Um, uh, that is less than 60 miles an hour <laughs> is that playing in my head especially going by driving through the peaks got lost in the peaks the other day and that played in my head uh, whilst, whilst my wife was having a kind of meltdown that we were lost but I was just kind of enjoying the sedate uh, uh, kind of strains of that of that score I love that one <laughs> in terms of soundtracks 
I'm a huge fan, as we've uh, discussed previously, of uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid soundtrack. Dirty Dancing soundtrack is wonderful, even though, even though um, uh, it's a film set in 1963, uh, but features a lot of songs with 80s production values. Sure. Uh, which is baffling, mm-hmm. considering that some of them are diegetic. Um, uh, which makes no sense whatsoever, but I just get so I get so swept up in the whole the whole occasion. Um, Days of Confused has got a great soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, most Tarantino film, big fan of the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack. That's yeah. fantastic. I listen to that a lot. What about you, soundtrack wise? Uh, Tarantino's a, a good shout. Uh, interestingly enough, one of my favorite of his soundtracks is his film, the film of his I like the least, which is Death Proof. Mm. I don't really like that film very much, although I haven't seen it in a few years. But the soundtrack to that is something I revisit quite a lot. I think there's a lot of really great, interesting songs on there. Similarly, I recently bought on vinyl the Darjeeling hipster. I know, terrible. The uh, Darjeeling Limited soundtrack, which is my least favorite of Wes Anderson's films, but is my favorite of his soundtracks because it's got such an interesting tone to it and the mixture of, you know, music from Merchant Ivory films and Saturday Ray and. You know, great, wonderful kink songs and things like that. I think a lot of... Is there any French pop on there? There is. There's a... Quel surprise. Champs-Élysées on there. Um, Even though I think that technically might be from Hotel Chevalier. You know, he's a a chancer, is that Wes Anderson. Mm. Um, Boogie Nights has a great soundtrack. I think uh, in terms of, like, score or something like that, the, the scores that Johnny Greenwood has done for... The Master and There Will Be Blood are both fantastic. Mm, that's a great show, There Will Be Blood. Yeah, There Will Be Blood is a great one if you want to walk around and just, you know, listen to it as you're walking around and imagine punching people in the face. Yeah, it's kind of atonal, kind of... Hey, does atonal mean opposite <laughs> I guess it does. Um, uh, John Williams' score for Catch Me If You Can. Oh, that's amazing. That's atypical of his normal scores. Yeah. Uh, it's a jazz score, which is bloody lovely. Yeah. Um, it's a very kind of cool... Um, uh, kind of bit of music that um, and yeah I'll always always kind of enter a room uh, with a theme from Shaft playing because <laughs> um, why not sure um, who are our favourite working actors and actresses Ed? that comes from Catherine yes who asked me this on the drive up from Devon yesterday <laughs> right, sure a lot of these questions come in the last 24 hours yeah because I started just listing people for questions to make sure we had a, a full amount to ask. Uh, this was actually really difficult for me because I just ended up thinking about... One of the things I found interesting was I just started thinking about actors and actors on television. Mm-hmm. And it's not because all the good actors on television there's no good actors in films, but just the fact that I think that... Um, Act, the fact that actors play parts over years and years means that it's easier to just kind of really kind of fall into the great work that they do and to really appreciate it. So my first answer was Amy Poehler, mm. uh, who I love on Parks and Recreation and also love in you know her work on Saturday Night Live. And she's the sort of person who, whenever she shows up in something, I'm just delighted to see her. I haven't seen Inside Out yet, but I'm really looking forward to seeing that. But even when... She would just show up for like an episode on Broad City or something. That's just you know an absolute delight. Uh, in terms of film actresses, I think it has to be uh, Mia Vajikovska, who uh, is the sort of person who I think could have 
followed a very easy career after she starred in Alice in Wonderland. You know, she could have just appeared in Big Bunch of Shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but she used the success of that film to just appear in lots of interesting films. And she's often the most interesting person in a lot of really interesting films. So actress, i go for that. Actor, uh, I think I'd probably go for someone like Garrett Dillahunt, who uh, I first saw in Deadwood, where he played two villainous parts. He played Jack McCall, and he played um, uh, he, he played uh, the villain the second season who just killed a bunch of prostitutes. Uh, who's yeah, with no man. explanation or any kind of, like attention brought to the fact that it was the same actor playing mm. two different parts. It, it was, was just, just, they just hired the same guy again. Yeah, and he was just amazing in both, but more, but he's also someone who, you know, he's in uh, No Country for Men as a slightly dopey deputy. He mm-hmm. was a uh, lead on Raising Hope, which is kind of a broad sitcom. He's someone who has a great range. He recently showed up on Justified as one of the more repellent characters that show has ever He can had. do anything Western-tinged. Yes. And he's got a great Western name. Yeah. Garrett Dillahunt. Uh, and also, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor is someone who, um, who just every time he appears in something, I'm just really delighted to see him. Ever since I, f- I think I first saw him in uh, Serenity, where he had a very calm and very uh, cool and disturbing demeanor as the kind of the chilly villain of that. And ever since then, any time he's in something from something like Inside Man, he's you know he's really good in a supporting role to Twelve Years a Slave, which is obviously kind of probably his biggest role to date Mm -hmm. Um, you know anything he's in I'm interested to see what he does Um, I'm going to go for um, Anna Kendrick as Mm. uh, my kind of favourite actress working today uh, on the basis of um, being just so utterly winsome uh, in everything Um, whether it's kind of like big broad comedy uh, like uh, Pitch Perfect, or which I, I have mentioned a few times, I do like. Mm-hmm. Um, well, or whether she'll just turn up in a Joe Swanberg film, or um, you like Drinking Buddies, or um, Happy Christmas, um, or then you know stuff she does like Up in the Air, or even I saw um, Into the Woods the other day, mm-hmm. and even though that film's not very really good, um, it was brighter when she was on screen, and that's yeah. what you kind of look for in. If people have got stage presence, uh, screen presence, or uh, uh, kind of, um, you know, they've got that extra something that kind of elevates it above the prosaic uh, sure. into the into the kind of you know watchable. Mm. Um, Johnny Depp used to have it; he could elevate anything into be watchable. But mm. now I'm not so sure. Yeah, um, actors wise, uh, very much like Jack O'Connell. Uh, right, yes. he's so hot right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he's yet to turn up in. A real turd. Uh, so he's always doing either interesting films or interesting work in kind of mediocre films. Um, although he's in Don Quixote, which mm. means that you know that's his career gone. Um, <laughs> and on television, um, mainly he's, he's kind of like uh, a counterpart to Garrett Dillahunt in the sense that he's got a great Western name and he turns up in a lot of Western-inspired things. But uh, Walton Goggins, yes, who um, is the man with the mystery hairline. Uh, it hasn't changed in like 15 years, which is <laughs> deeply suspicious. Uh, not that he's got a full head of hair, but he's had the same receding hairline now mm. for about 12 years. Um, but I always like him. Uh, he brings a certain kind of danger yeah. to roles, uh, kind of like uh, um, simmering menace, mm-hmm. um, which is never too far away from erupting. I like that. I like that about the guy. I like, I like the fact that when you talk about the sense of danger... 
he's embodied two entirely different kinds of dangers in his two major roles, playing uh, Shane Vandrell on The Shield. He's dangerous because he's someone who never seems to have any grasp of the situation he's in, so he can always go completely wrong. And as Boyd Crowder on Justified, he's someone who's always in control of the situation, so he's just dangerous because you know that he's always thinking about seven moves ahead. And I think it's interesting that so close together, he's embodied two entirely different images of an incredibly dangerous kind of character. Yeah, his thought, pro- the Shane's thought process in the Shield is: I want to do something. Oh, now I'm gonna have to kill some dude. That's <laughs> pretty much it. Yeah, you know, he always just murder his way out of a situation, which is alarming if you're a police officer. Um, what? Let's pick another question for us, Ed. What sequels are better than the originals? This was also asked by uh, Simon Jenkins. Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, the go-to answers normally are, you know, Godfather 2, um, Empire Strikes Back, Empire Strikes Back um, some, like, uh, Aliens is one that people come to, yeah. which is unfair because it's a different type of film. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Alien is a, is a horror film, a kind of haunted house film in, on a spaceship. Aliens is a straight-up war film, um, so they're kind of almost too hard to compare. I'm going to throw in a couple of uh, suggestions. Mine would be um, French Connection 2. Okay. Uh, French Connection 1 is great. Mm-hmm. French Connection 2 is is really dark and sinister. Yeah. Um, uh, it kind of moves out of America and has uh, Popeye go to... Uh, not actual Popeye, the character Popeye Doyle, played by um, Gene Hackman, goes to France to kind of pursue this drug ring even further, but ends up being kidnapped and forcibly addicted to heroin mm-hmm. and it just gets it just gets really kind of dark it's got a really grim bleak ending um which uh even though the original was quite kind of hard-nosed and, and kind of biting um this kind of takes it to all new depth which is what you want you don't want the same thing again yeah um or the same thing in a different setting you want the characters that you kind of grown to like pushed into areas that you haven't seen before um, that's a good example um, another one that I'd pick is Ginger Snaps uh, Unleashed. Mm-hmm. Um, Ginger Snaps, a, a kind of teen werewolf movie from uh, the early 2000s, which is a lot of fun, very good. But then Ginger Snaps Unleashed is the sequel which takes the characters and moves them, uh, kind of changes the, the dynamic and, and kind of shifts the focus between the sisters and makes it a much more, rather than a girl turns into werewolf, goes crazy and kills a lot of people which is a lot of fun in the first film and they have fun doing it, it becomes a much more kind of internal struggle um, between the two characters and the characters with themselves. And it's, I think it's a better better film. For me, one from last year, which I think uh, I think you probably agree with, was 22 Jump Street. Oh, I'd say that's as good. I wouldn't say it's better. But I, I, I like the first 20, the, the 21 Jump Street a lot. I think... I prefer the second just because they really steer into the skid of how meta it gets. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I think that's why it put a lot of people off. I mean, not enough that it didn't make nearly $200 million in the US. But it, I think it was a case of a film where they realised the dangers of making a sequel and they just really, really just kind of mm. embedded that into the the the. the kind of DNA of it is they're constantly making fun of the fact that they're making a sequel. Mm -hmm. Um, Toy Story 2, I preferred Toy Story 1, although in many cases that's, in a lot of cases it's really very close between all all three of the Toy Story films, but... It's a tough call, I wouldn't want to put a credit card between them. Yeah. It's very close. 
uh, I think that that's one where they take the sadness of the first film and really kind of push it in interesting directions. Uh, if, uh, the Raid 2, or the Raid Barantal, <laughs> yeah. is better than The Raid Redemption. The Raid Redemption is a really good pure action film. The Raid Barantal is a very good kind of crime saga. It escapes from the confines of being just in a tower block. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the only thing that holds it back is the fact that it has to justify the fact it's a sequel to The Raid because uh, Gareth... Ed, no, Evans. We was, have this problem every, every week. week. Gareth Evans, I think he wrote... If I remember correctly, he wrote the script for Barantal originally and then he made the raid to fund it mm-hmm. and then people wouldn't make it unless they said it was a raid sequel so they just basically at the start they have kind of token nods to the first film just to kind of set it up as a direct sequel and then from that point onwards it basically has nothing to do with the first film and that's the only thing that holds it back is the fact it is a sequel but i think that it is it is a lot more fair even a lot more fun like i like the raid but there's a lot of the fights get a little samey mm-hmm. whereas the second one has you know a guy who kills people with like hitting baseballs at them and a woman who you know runs around smacking people to death with knives with her hammers you know it's a little it's it's a little bit more varied and it has a, a, a grander scope to it mm. and hammers and hammers plus yeah. hammers Karen on Twitter asks us who should direct uh, episode nine? And I'm presuming she means Star Wars episode nine, not episode nine of like some TV show that she had mentioned. Or episode nine of this show, because that's we're long past. That. Yeah, that ship sailed. Uh, it is gone. Great question. We've got uh, JJ Rooms mm-hmm. uh, doing episode seven. Ryan Johnson, who we're big fans of, doing episode eight. So who should realistically and obviously in our kind of fantasy direct uh, episode nine? Uh, I'd really like to see someone like Nicholas Winding Refn do it. Fuck, dude. That's going <laughs> to be pretty hardcore. Uh, he'd never get it. I think no. at most he might get an anthology film. But I think yeah. I think someone with a very strong visual style being unleashed on the Star Wars universe. Like Gaspar be... No or something. <laughs> Gaspar No's episode nine. Just 3D of wangling a lightsaber in someone's face for two hours. Yeah. Um... I think someone who's been touted for it a lot is Brad Bird, mm-hmm. who I think would be a really great choice for that as long as Damon Lindelof isn't writing the script. Um, I think he's someone who has a really great visual sense. He's someone who can balance heart with uh, with special effects to a really great extent. Uh, I think he's someone who can handle a film of that scale. I think he's someone I'd, I'd really like to see do that. Mm. I think... Uh... Whedon, Joss Whedon would be a, would be a great shout. Mm. Um, you're going to sandwich two kind of capable franchise directors uh, on either side of, of tasty Ryan Johnson filling, which is he's kind of less proven at a larger budget. Yeah. Um, that would be a kind of a safe choice. Fantasy choices. Uh, Shane Carruth would make a very interesting <laughs> Star Wars episode nine. Shane Meadows. Shane Meadows would make a pretty kind of <laughs> loose episode nine set in like the East Midlands. Um, ben Wheatley, this is semi-serious. Ben Wheatley would make an excellent episode nine. He certainly seems to be building that way with his, like you know, his adaptation of High Rise and uh, Crossfire. Is that Free, Fire, Free Fire? I think it's called. Yeah, um, he's kind of building up in terms of budget and, and scope. So maybe in twenty years he'll direct episode seventeen. Yeah, or the yeah, 
or the remake of A New Hope. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I certainly don't want Matthew Vaughan directing it, no. uh, who I'm slowly starting to realise is my least favourite director working in films mm. today, and that includes Michael Bay. Um, I think that'd be horrible. But I do, li- I do like um, what they're doing. I do like uh, Disney's uh, whoever's in charge of, of kind of the Lucasfilm arm of giving interesting directors a go. Ryan mm. Johnson is not an obvious choice to direct oh. Episode Eight. Um, which Gareth is it again? <laughs> Gareth Edwards, <laughs> Edwards. Uh, is not wouldn't be your first spin-off choice director, but that is, you know, that's those are cool choices. And uh, even yeah. Josh Trank, who's not lo- no longer doing it, I mean that uh, was, that was a pretty uh, far out choice to go for. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, I, I do like that the, they're doing that um, until they all one of them fails or gets bad notices, and they'll mm-hmm. bring in I don't know. Brett Ratner. Brett Ratner's Star Wars, could you imagine? Well, I can imagine. <laughs> uh, it'd be pretty kind of grating. Um, yeah, and he'd still find a way to get some upskirt into it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how. Admiral Akbar's upskirt. I don't want to see that. Um, what, what, what have we got next? Throw us another one. Uh, best film with the worst ending. Another question from Neil. But Neil's asking a lot of questions. He asks a lot of questions, Neil. I think you should stop being friends with him. Um, I'm going to be kind of controversial uh, because overall it is a good film. It's an excellent film, in fact. Um, but Django Unchained mm-hmm. um, kind of goes off the rails a little bit. Uh, I'd say that it is a five-star movie, a bonus, bona, fide, a bona fide five-star movie um, until the last 20 minutes because that is a two-star Max, and that's being kind mm. uh, finale. As soon as Australian Quentin Tarantino turns <laughs> up, you know you are just you are just jolted out of a film, which is essentially a black exploitation film set in the antebellum West. Yeah, which you know you should have been jolted out of it much earlier, but you aren't because you're kind of transported along with this kind of uh, rip roaring storytelling and kind of verve of the whole thing, and then all of a sudden. Quentin Tarantino turns up with an Australian. I think is he is supposed to be Australian. I guess. I guess. Yeah, it's horrifying, and that really just kind of it was like a cold bucket of piss in the face after <laughs> you know enjoying. And I don't like having cold buckets of piss thrown in my face. Mostly, yeah. Um, but that would be my choice, Django Unchained. My choice would be. It's a film that I would I would hazard to say is great, but it's a film that has a great ending. And then it continues for 15 minutes, and that's Wes Craven's Scream 4. Mm-hmm. For the first hour and a half, it's a fun continuation of the series. There's like nods and winks to previous horror films. There's some, some really clever stuff in there. And then it reaches a point where it reveals who the killer is, mm-hmm. and it's revealed that the killer is doing it in order to become famous in much the same way that Sydney did in the original film. And uh, they um, seemingly kill everyone or put them into kind of states where they may not, you know, fully recover ever again. And the they then, in order to make themselves seem like the hero, they throw themselves around the room and injure themselves. And it's a moment of complete insanity mm-hmm. and kind of keening madness that is so amazing to behold and makes you think... God, if the film ended here, it would be so good. And then it continues for 15 minutes and then that killer gets killed. Uh, and it's really bo- It's a really boring way to end a film where you watch it and you think, God, you had a perfect ending and then you just ruined it by adding 15 minutes. So uh, Scream 4 would be my, my choice for a film that 
kind of blows it at the last minute. Um, what? Uh, okay, it was here's one from uh, James via email. Um, how is it that an actor can be both brilliant and terrible in a film in the same year? How does that happen? Um, I mean, it does happen quite often. Mm-hmm. Uh, notably, the most recent example I can think of is uh, Eddie Redmayne, who won an Oscar for uh, The Theory of Everything, but at the same time turned in one of the most preposterous performances I think I've ever seen in Jupiter Ascending, mm-hmm. where he whispers a lot, and then he just explodes with rage. <laughs> but a kind of weird, stupid rage that I I kind of, I was underplaying it there, I don't know, but I, that's because I've... You would wake everyone up. Yeah, but I've got nuances as an actor. I've got, I've got kind of, uh, it's all shades for me. <laughs> he was very much uh, black and white there. Um, but, it, I mean, that's an insane performance. But, I, I, I mean, I suppose the, the easy, quick answer to this is that uh, when an actor signs on to do a film, they don't know which ones are going to be good and which ones are going to be bad. Yeah, I mean, there are some cases where... It, it's you can kind of see it as being the actor's fault. I mean, an, an example from several years ago would be Norbit, mm-hmm. where it was a film that Eddie Murphy wrote, yeah, and uh, was very heavily involved in getting made, and it happened to come out at the same time as his kind of incendiary and great performance in Dreamgirls. Oscar nominated. Oscar nominated. Many people think he lost the no, he lost the Oscar because of Norbit. Norbit yeah. And in those cases, it is. You look at it, you think that's because the absolute worst excesses of a of a performer were being uh, pandered to by letting him make Norbit, um, and then at least someone in his entourage said, "Hey, maybe you should do this Dreamgirls film." Mm. Um, but in a lot of cases, it is just the fact that you know, if you're a working actor, you're just going to be pinwheeling between whatever jobs are given you. Uh, also, um, a performance that might uh, not have been available to you. Um, through reasons like, for instance, Charlie's Theron, uh, she made Monster uh, and won an Oscar for it, and then obviously took on a big action film in Ion Flux, which she probably wouldn't have been offered mm-hmm. before Monster, and that turned out to be a fucking dog. Uh, mm-hmm. Similar Halle Berry with yeah. winning for Monster's Ball and then doing um, Catwoman because Catwoman wouldn't have been uh, on the table had she not, you know, just won an Oscar because they they thought we really need some Oscar credo to bring life to this cat woman yeah um uh, yeah that can happen but i mean generally like, i mean at the early red main example there he, you know he would have done he probably would have made jupiter ascending before the theory of everything because he probably would have had a very long post-production yeah and then uh you know you got these things oh i'll do a big action film i mean if that film would have been good then people would have probably overlooked his kind of slightly ludicrous performance but as it was I don't know how true this is, but the rumours were that they were tr- his people, his mm-hmm. agents were trying to kind of minimise the promotion of Eddie Redmayne in, in Jupiter Ascending because they thought it might damage his chances to win an Oscar because his performance is genuinely that bad. Yeah, or at the very least, it's horribly out of place. Um, I was listening to the episode of How Did This Get Made, another film called podcast. That, you know, I mean, it's not on the same level of us. But no. I mean, that is literally true. <laughs> it's yeah. definitely not on the same level that we are. Mm. But they but they talked about um, Jupiter Ascending and they said that the, uh, kind of the big problem with that film is that Eddie Redmayne is the only person giving a performance in a campy space opera and everyone else is doing kind of a surprisingly underplayed performance. 
Yeah. If everyone else was at the same level of intensity that he was, I think he he would not be as noticeable because he's the only person who seems to have decided I'm going to really kind of go big here. Mm. He just stands out like a sore thumb. But it's because he read the script. If I read yeah. if I read a script that had you know a kind of prophecy of someone being kind of a part B, uh, <laughs> and her boyfriend was a kind of. Uh, anti-gravity roller skating dog man she loves dogs um absolutely he's always loved dogs. must love dogs um then i would probably play it up yeah i'd probably think do you know what this sounds fun but no one else thought that <laughs> everyone thought we're making fucking shinders list here let's really really play it straight um and uh yes uh jupiter ascending is not shinders list Okay, I have a question. It's weighty. We've gone from uh, Jupiter ascending to something quite weighty. It's from uh, Mooney via email. Um, Why is it perfectly average news to be homosexual in every single performing arts form or creative industry, but not in film if you are a leading man? That's a, you mean, that's got, there's societal issues there. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, we don't, we're not really, this is a fun podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're not going to offer any easy solutions to this. Um, other than the world is shit. The world is shit. Um, I also think that Hollywood has a long and inglorious history of um, coding gay characters as villains. Uh, you could go back to the Maltese Falcon, where Peter Laurie's character is very clearly meant to be gay, and they never say it out loud. But um, they have a very, there's a very long history of basically quietly coding that characters who are villains are clearly meant to be gay and so there's this whole Darth Vader Darth Vader uh there's this whole Skeletor there's this whole there's this whole history of of kind of very covert background uh repression going on Mm -hmm. and so that's why and that kind of feeds a situation in which people shouldn't announce their sexuality because they feel it will limit their roles. They can only ever play the gay best friend or or whatever. Uh, and so it, there's this kind of very long historical thing where gay characters. Also, there's you know there's the whole thing of gay characters essentially being just kind of the fun comic relief. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that people would ever take really seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, you have something like Harry Shearer in not Harry Shearer. Um, <laughs> Moira Shearer? Hank Azaria. Right, okay. (laughs) Different Simpsons actor. Hank Azaria in The Birdcage, which is a really funny performance, and I think is a a performance that's given with a lot of, a reasonable amount of sensitivity and empathy, but is clearly like a big gay stereotype Mm -hmm. in like a big mainstream film, and there's a sense that that's all that gay people are meant to be, so maybe there's a tendency to hide it, because if there's a sense that if you're out in Hollywood, people just won't take you seriously. Yeah. Um, uh, Because we all know that pretty much every lead actor in Hollywood is gay. Mm -hmm. Although I'm... Without exception. I'm pretty sure Warren Beatty's straight. Or he's really compensating. Yeah, he is. He is really overdoing it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it is is an odd one. Um, I think maybe it's because um, films are released so widely... Mm. Um, you know, people don't, you know, worry about how, um, you know, George Michael's song is going to perform. That is the most current gay singer I can think of. <laughs> That's unfucking believable. <laughs> Jesus. Um, they won't worry about, uh, hang on, let me think. Let me think. Uh, Will Young? Will Young, Sam Smith, possibly. Uh, they won't worry about, uh, how his song's going to play on a radio in a traditionally conservative area, mm-hmm. um, but they certainly will think about 
that when it comes to uh, racial issues, for example, they you know they won't cast. We've talked about this before. Um, you know, a black actor in a romantic uh, uh, lead with a white actress because they're worried about how it will play in, you know, the Midwest or the Deep South. Um, yeah. Apologies if you're from any of those places and you're not an arsehole. Um, but it's, I imagine it's the same thing. It's just oversensitivity to market demographics. Yeah. And, and also, if you're looking at certain areas like theatre, Theatre is very concentrated in a very few places, Mm -hmm. primarily New York in America or London in the UK. And, you know, that's it's just very much an insular community where people are going to be very accepting of that Mm -hmm. and they won't really care that much. Whereas, you know, if you're a Hollywood star and you become very famous, people are going to be writing about you in magazines and on websites and they're going to do TV shows about you, which they're not really going to do if you're like a Broadway favourite. No. Like, no one's writing tabloid stuff about Nathan Lane. No, no. But it, it is kind of indicative of that conservatism and worrying about people not giving you money, which is terrible. Yeah. It's an awful way to uh, kind of treat people. Um, so go fuck yourselves, uh, <laughs> Hollywood executives. Uh, what have we got next, Dave? Uh In this golden age, this is from uh, Lewis Davis. Uh, no relation, but a good friend. Yeah. Uh, in this golden age of television, what lauded TV show is least deserving of the play, praise it has received? Um, with uh, kind of don't want to upset anyone, um, but then I'm equally going to please people because this was a very divisive show. Um, but Lost, um, sure. a show which was lauded less critically, but it was more kind of loved, um, yeah. was a TV show that I felt could not deliver on its mystery, which was amazing and, and kind of very kind of exciting to watch being set up. Um, but for me, uh, grew incredibly tiresome um, because I didn't find the characters interesting enough to um, kind of pursue it past the uh, shell game that it was playing of what is real, what's going on, why is there a polar bear? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can... I can kind of go along with that uh, if there's something else. But for me, there wasn't really anything. And all the flashback stuff kind of deeply embarrassed me, especially some of the stuff where with Don- Dominic Monaghan's character mm-hmm. went flashback to a traditional British pub, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> looks like the traditional British pubs they have in Disneyland. Yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, it just kind of jolted me out and I, I didn't um, yeah, didn't go for it at all and couldn't couldn't get past it. Yeah, that was a show that kind of lived and died on a weekly basis. Like, you could have individual episodes that were really amazing and some episodes that were terrible, like the one where they decided they needed to spend an hour explaining how Jack got his tattoos rather than just thinking, the actor has tattoos, we don't really need to explain this. Um, But, yeah, when it came to delivering the big picture stuff, it just kind of came across as a bit of a shrug. Mm. Yeah. I found this one actually quite a difficult question to ask because a lot of the things I thought of were cases of shows where maybe the first two or three seasons were really acclaimed and then they really fell off a cliff and then everyone kind of modulated their thing. Like Sons of Anarchy was a show that was really great for its first two or three seasons, but unfortunately it lasted seven years Mm -hmm. and it just completely fell off the cliff entirely. Um, So, but Or Dexter, another one, lasted like three or four really great seasons but then ended with one of the most ludicrous season finales of all time. Um, 
But my answer would be uh, Homeland, mm-hmm. which does have a couple of great performances from Claire Danes and uh, Mandy Patinkin, but even the first season is just a slightly less ridiculous version of 24, mm-hmm. and there's not a huge amount of substance to it, but the amount of praise that it received for its first season being a slightly better 24 mm. was hugely out of proportion. And now, opinion has kind of levelled on it, and people say, ah, it's a pretty good show. But like, I feel like that should have been the response to it from the beginning, <laughs> yeah. rather than the kind of hyperbole that was thrown out about it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I like that, that that question is tough to answer, mm. and that all the picks we came up with were network shows, with the exception of uh, Sons of Anarchy. And Homeland. And home. Oh fuck! Yeah. Right, that's that's kind of pinned my argument with a balloon. I was about to say that like there's not too many of the AAA cable shows that have been that I think are massively overrated. I think that uh, things like The Sopranos mm-hmm. have their down seasons. Yeah, I was talking about this with someone earlier today. I said that I love the last episode of The Sopranos. I just don't like the two seasons that preceded it. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it's a very stellar time to be into television. We're gonna we're gonna do another episode about television um, in the near future, and you've got a further discussion like that to come, which will be thrilling for everyone. Uh, what else we got? Uh, I think this is a this is a big question about the show. Whatever happened to Joe Gastineau? Uh, asks Chopper fifty eight on Twitter. Um, Joe Gastineau, as uh, some of you uh, will know, was the original host of this show. He sounded a lot like me. Um, and there is a story behind it. It's not very interesting. Essentially, I used to work in films. Um, I worked on some films that got made, like Four Lions, and um, I had a Kill List. I made uh, some. I didn't make it. No, that'd be crazy. <laughs> I worked on it. Um, I did a little bit of work on This Is England, the TV series. Basically, anything that was shot in Sheffield, <laughs> I worked on uh, briefly. But at the same time, I was starting to write a blog, um, a short-lived, um, poorly committed to by me, uh, called The Wooden Kimono. And I thought, having spent a bit of time hanging around actors, and it didn't take too long for you to realise that they know people and like they talk about people. And I thought, well, it wouldn't be very professional if I had these jobs on films and a blog at the same time. So I decided to write a blog under a pseudonym. Literally, as soon as I started the blog, I didn't work in the film industry again. (laughs) Uh, They weren't connected. It was just a coincidence. And um, I uh, ended up stuck with the the pseudonym. And I kind of liked it at the start. I was like, this is a nice uh, nom de guerre. Is it nom de guerre or nom de plume? Uh, It's kind of both, I guess, because you're both... Existing under it and writing under it. Okay, yeah. Which one's the uh, writing one? Plume. Plume. Because uh, that's my one of my favourite jokes, that a uh, a uh, food critic that wants to stay anonymous writes under a nom nom de plume. <laughs> <laughs> you can have that one for free, uh, listeners. Uh, but anyway, I uh, yes, I wrote under this uh, name for ages um, and thought it was kind of cool. And then I started going to festivals and having to register under a fake name, which was really weird. And it was kind of awkward because I'd have to tell this exact story to everyone I met, uh, especially people I met on Twitter and then met in real life. Um, and it got really fucking tiresome and I got really bored of it. And then I stopped writing the blog. And then around 30 episodes ago, <laughs> I just stopped saying my name when we started it and then phased it out. And then 
uh, about 10 episodes ago, started saying my actual name uh, in the hope that no one would notice. So thanks, Chopper58 on, on Twitter. That's the story. Who is the most terrifying villain in film history from JLS9 on Twitter, I imagine? Uh, yeah, Twitter. It was uh, I. The first thing that springs to mind uh, for me is uh, Frank Booth in uh, Blue Velvet, mm-hmm. uh, played by Dennis Hopper, um, who has played you know, the most terrifying villain of all time, plus uh, Cooper, King Cooper in uh, <laughs> Super Mario Brothers. Um, so, you know, he does have, he does straddle two extremes. I'd say him, um, just purely for the level of kind of psychosexual dementedness that he brings to that part. And, you know, I find people scary, not because they're kind of got masks on and they're kind of wielding a machete or, you know, they can kind of supernaturally pop out of a cupboard. Why would a supernatural thing pop out of a cupboard? That's a ridiculous (laughs) thing to say. It would materialize behind you. If you were supernatural, you wouldn't just, you know teleport into a cupboard to jump out you just that's fucking ridiculous I've uh, fallen foul to my own logic there but um, you know I don't find those as scary as real people who are feasible mm-hmm. um, and kind of unhinged in the same way that um, uh, Logan from uh, Sexy Beast portrayed by Ben Kingsley is deeply terrifying um, because you are so on edge because he could do something horrifying at a moment's notice yeah. Much like Joe Pesci in uh, in, in Goodfellas, you know, you, if you say the wrong thing, you know, you're going to take one to the face. And uh, I think maybe Logan in uh, in um, uh, Sexy Beast is t- more terrifying because it's played by Ben Kingsley, yeah, who has you know got quite a refined air to him. But then there he is talking about spunk bubbles and <laughs> just being just generally horrifying. Uh, that's who I'd pick. They'd be my least favorite trio of people to have to dinner. Joe Pesci, Ben Kingsley, <laughs> and uh, and Frank Booth. Yeah, uh, I think mine would probably be again similarly people who could be real, mm-hmm. like not going supernatural. Noah Cross from Chinatown. That's a monster right there. He is he is the most one of the more monstrous people on in cinema, and mainly because he's so casual about it. Mm-hmm. Like when Jake Gitty's uncovers what he's done he doesn't really care yeah like because he's so rich and powerful it doesn't really affect him and he's someone who exists in a frame of mind in a social context in which he can get away with anything he wants sure and he's just so and a part part of it is the fact that um john houston plays him with such an imperiousness mm-hmm. that you just kind of realize oh yeah this guy doesn't really care he doesn't really care that he's been found out he'll just keep doing the things he's been doing and it will continue on for generations and it's horrible mm. uh, the other one and I'm annoyed I can't remember the actor's name but the uh, main villain from The Vanishing uh, yeah is another one I'm again, not going to help you out there I don't know his name either <laughs> uh, from the original not the uh, Keith Sutherland version yeah, not Jeff Bridges no um, he is again it's a guy who's just very casual about how terrible he is mm. and also he's someone who explains his reasons for the things that he's done in a way that makes a kind of horrible logical sense and that the idea at any time where you can see that someone has really worked out what they've done that 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 terrifies me a bit because there's something about when someone is just crazy that can be dangerous but it's not necessarily care- scary because you can kind of explain away as someone who's just crazy whereas if someone who has got a methodology to it mm-hmm. 
that is that to me is very very uh, very terrifying. Yeah, here's a question that you know probably can't be answered uh, quickly. Um, Tristan on email writes uh, after watching Godfather one and two. Um, struck by the long storytelling dynamic, has our diminishing attention spans and our time poor lifestyles diminished our appetite for long form storytelling? That's a very great question, which probably has two answers. You can give one, and I'll give the other. Okay, my answer is that actually there's probably more of an appetite for long form storytelling than there's ever been, but it's all pretty much migrated to television. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that. Game of Thrones wouldn't be a phenomenon if people weren't interested in a long form of storytelling. I mm-hmm. don't think that The Wire would have been... Deadwood. Yeah. Breaking Bad. Uh, yeah. Shows that are deliberately structured in a way that essentially say you may get enjoyment on a week-to-week basis and an episode-to-episode basis, but they're essentially saying this is building towards something. And I think that the idea of a golden age of, te- or golden age of television plays into that idea that essentially... What you're saying is that people are interested in watching shows that are going to tell a longer narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that 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 there is definitely an appetite for it, but I don't think that necessarily there is much one for cinema these days. Yeah, I mean that's not to say that people don't like long films yeah. on cinema because the Lord of the Rings films were quite successful, mm. and um, if you added all three of their running times together, it lasts four and a half years. <laughs> Uh, so I mean that's and Avatar's also quite long Titanic's very long and these are all you know films that the, Avengers, the, the Avengers films are very long yeah Gone with the Wind is quite long and I think mm-hmm. we've listed if you adjust for inflation most of the top 10 highest grossing films of all time yeah um, the second answer to this question is uh, it's unfair to ask that question because those two films were made in the 1970s mm. and the 1970s as we have said a long well, for ages um, where a unique time in cinema because um, you know the old model of making films had kind of uh, dissolved and uh, you know it wasn't profitable to throw money into these massive kind of large scale epics around the same time with all that kind of counter cultural filmmaking as well. The Hollywood studios realised it was profitable to give money to people who had ideas and uh, you know were kind of young upcoming filmmakers rather than these old kind of old school craftsmen, um, these kind of in-house directors who could keep to a house style. Um, and what we ended up with was the kind of the best and kind of purplest of purple patches in, in recent cinema history. And I say recent because that's how depressingly far ago it was. <laughs> uh, we're talking 1967 to 1982, a, a period that we go on about all the time and is commonly known as the Easy Riders Raging Bulls. Uh, period um, and that was at the very crest of that wasn't it where they yeah. gave some money to Francis Ford Coppola it was a huge mistake because he didn't know what he was doing he directed Godfather it was a huge hit and then they gave him uh, green light to do whatever he wanted on Godfather 2 and that's what you get when you get uh, someone who is at the top of their game who has total artistic uh, and creative freedom and a big budget Ten years later, you get one from the heart, which is also a great film, but is uh, demented enough to have lost everything and killed the dream. Um, so there's a flip side to that. But uh, yes, you're not really going to get those kind of films made uh, these days um, because they can just do it on TV. It backs up what we saw Walter Murch saying at uh, DocFest a couple of years ago when he gave his masterclass. He said that cinema has ceded the, the intellectual middle ground to television, and that is a prime example of that happening. 
also, I think there are a lot of long films, a lot of um, films being made that are very intelligent. I think if you look at something like um, Once, Upon, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, which is a film that is very demanding about what you know you, it wants the audience to give to it. But I think that in terms of mainstream cinema, there's definitely been a divergence. You know, if you just look at the 70s, the, the thing that was special about it was that there was a period of time in which commerce and art kind of, you know, they they were, they were at the centre of the Venn diagram. Mm-hmm. And then in the years since then, they kind of veered off. And occasionally you'll get stuff kind of crisscrossing in and out. But in general, it's become a case where there are there are films like The Godfather being made, but they're being made for very small audiences. Yeah. Speaking of kind of long films that are uh, popular, uh, Matt G. Saller on Twitter asks, why do people like Shawshank Redemption so much? Now, that's an interesting question on two levels. One, because it is a incredibly popular film. Uh, it is kind of up there as one or two in the IMDb Top 250, which, as we all know, is the definitive <laughs> uh, reflection of uh, the world's film tastes. Um, but on the second uh, kind of flip side to that... Um, it was a massive failure. So how can something be a massive failure at the box office and still be inexplicably popular with people? A big part of the success of that film came on home video and cable and things like that. I think it benefited from being a film that seemed to be constantly on. Mm-hmm. And I think when stuff like that, it reinforces the idea that it's a good film if people can constantly watch it. Um, I think a large part of why it it eventually became a success is that it is inc- it's it's very uplifting mm-hmm. uh it's a film that you watch it and you kind of get drawn into it and then at the end you're kind of left with a very emotional high but it's a kind of a, a a in a way kind of a small kind of film it's not a film that's got a lot of big moments until the very very end mm-hmm. i think that's the sort of thing that probably plays a little better on television than it does in the cinema mm-hmm. so i think that's part of the reason why it became such a huge success after its initial failure. But also, it's, it's important to note that it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Yeah. I think that raised its profile a lot and made people say, what the hell's this film mm. <laughs> that's been nominated for seven or eight Oscars or whatever it was. And, I think, uh, and you know, we talk about the, the fact that the Oscars are not very important in a, in a real sense and don't really mean anything. But, you know, if a film has a bunch of Oscars on its poster or on its video box people are more likely to check it out yeah i think so um i also feel like and i don't wish this to sound patronizing or condescending but it's the kind of film that someone would watch and think that's a really good film mm. on the basis that like i had to write think about it and that yeah um because as much as I, I don't really have a huge problem with the short Redemption, it's a film i liked a lot when i was younger um, I haven't probably seen it for the best part of 15 years, but it's the kind of film that like has very obvious um, uh, kind of sledgehammer in the face messages in it. Like he has to gen- literally crawl through a river of shit to come out clean on the other side, which is kind of like what happened to him in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a like a thing that people might pick up on because it's obvious, but think that they're being t- they're spoken to in this kind of. Uh, um, really, this way that, that kind of makes them feel in on it, yeah. Um, even though that kind of thing is very heavy-handed, 
Um, but for a big kind of broad audience film, maybe not so much. I'm, I'm genuinely mystified of the kind of the, the absolute love for it. Um, yeah. But I have no... I, feel, I, like, I like watching it in the sense that it feels like quite an old-fashioned film, a film that could have been made, or perhaps without the rape stuff, yeah. um, like in the 40s or 50s and would have been kind of well thought of. Henry Fonda in the lead role, possibly. Um, probably a white dude in the Morgan Freeman role, like the book. Yeah. Um, or maybe you get Paul Robeson in if you really Paul want Robeson, to yeah. He's got that kind of lovely baritone. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm kind of as, as baffled as anyone that it's always up there. But um, I, I think it's a film that exists in kind of a middle register for a lot of people. It's not a film that for a lot of people would be, and certainly in terms of explaining why it's so high on the IMDb rating, mm-hmm. it's not a film that maybe everyone would put as their favourite, yeah. but it's also not, it's a film that's very hard to actively dislike, mm. and that kind of averages out, and I think it's a film that just so many people have seen that there's a kind of consensus, like something like Forrest Gump, yeah. it's a film that so many people have seen that, that a consensus has kind of formed around it. Yeah, yeah. I hate Forrest Gump as well. Uh, <laughs> uh, which is the best father-son duo asks Andy on Twitter is it Donald and Kiefer Sutherland Ben and Jerry Stiller or Jake and Gary Busey um, discuss I think it depends on in terms of people who are best together I think Ben Stiller and Jerry Stiller have a lot of uh, a very a lot of genuine kind of chemistry whenever they appear on screen often they're not playing father and son like in Zoolander mm-hmm. where they just kind of play off of each other very well but in terms of who are the best actors I think it's very hard to say that it's not Kiefer and Donald because Donald Sutherland is a great actor mm. Kiefer Sutherland has a great magnetic presence if you see him and stuff like Lost Lost Boys and you know 20 obviously he was Stand, Stand by me. Stand by me. Yeah. He was the main reason to watch Twenty Four. Mm-hmm. Uh, he could elevate something shit like Phone Booth. Mm-hmm. You know, he. The, I, I think I find it very, very hard to really compare the other two pairings um, to those two, just in sheer terms of acting ability. I mean, I think Gary and Jake have been included there as a as a, as a lark mm-hmm. um, because uh, Gary Busey is a kind of walking punchline. Um, Whose films I enjoy. Let's mm-hmm. not beat around the bush. Um, but Jake Busey, I mean, I haven't seen him in anything since Starship Troopers, I don't think. No, I haven't either. Um, he's probably like selling big issues somewhere. Or <laughs> he's gone to Broadway uh, to be a big star, possibly. Um, so yeah, I'd go for Sutherland's every time. Um, they've got more uh, clout, especially Donald, um, than the Buseys. What is the best ever Friends episode? Uh, I think these questions are, they're starting to run out of steam. Um, but I, I know you've got one, and I know I've got one. What's yours? My favourite would be the one where they're all having to go to uh, the, the. They're all going to like a party or a big event that Ross is behind, and mm-hmm. I basically like all of the Friends episodes where they confine it to just the apartments, and that one's just a, a farce where they're all trying to leave, and it's kind of very Seinfeldian. Yeah, and they're all trying to do a very simple thing which is leave the apartment and get to a place and then the interpersonal dynamics between them completely fall apart and it has the great image of um <laughs> of uh, uh of Matt LeBlanc through his own twisted logic deciding that the opposite of Chandler borrowing one of his of refusing to wear something of 
Joey's is to wear everything Chandler owns. Yeah. Um, which is a, just a great physical, a bit of physical comedy that the show didn't really do that much, but it's kind of a big prop gag that works. Mm. Um, that is what we call in television a bottle episode, isn't yes. it? Yes. Um, and you say very Seinfeldy, and I thought that that episode of Friends was masterful and kind of the most genius thing ever because it was all in one room and it was in real time and they were all just trying to do something. And then I watched Seinfeld and I'm like, <laughs> oh, they were doing this quite a long time before every yeah. week um, yeah. and much better. Um, which is not to say that the episode isn't funny because it is very funny. Um, I, I'm not so much an episode because I can't remember which one it's in, um, but my favourite episode in all of Friends is uh, in a later series where uh, they've swapped apartments mm-hmm. and uh, there's a bit where um, Monica or Rachel proffers a uh, trade that they will have their apartment back if her and Monica kiss for one minute. <laughs> <laughs> and you never see it and it just smash cuts to Joey and Chandler walking back into their apartment and saying, totally worth it, and then they just go into their separate rooms on their own as if to have a long think about it. That's my favourite uh, moment in Friends because um, <laughs> I find Friends quite kind of asinine and kind of uh, bland, but that, in some of the earlier seasons had some quite wicked moments in it. I like that one. Yeah. Uh, what have we got next? We're kind of winding down now. Uh, what films are better than the books they're based on? Uh, another question from Simon. Um, I'm going to be controversial and uh, say the Lord of the Rings trilogy mm. um, because as as rich with imagery and songs as uh, the Lord of the Rings books are, um, they are at times uh, a kind of turgid, swampy bog of, of imagery and songs. And yep. Uh, meandering storytelling and the films have a certain kind of propulsiveness to them that is a bit more kind of direct and uh, there's no like there's little even though the the films have about six million characters in them um, very few of them are completely extraneous Mm -hmm. whereas in the books you could cut for weeks (laughs) and there would be (laughs) nothing left uh, but what they had in the film so uh, I don't think there's much in it but uh, I'd, I'd kind of say the films I enjoy more than the books anyway. I would probably go for The Godfather. Mm-hmm. I mean, The Godfather books, they're lots of fun, mm-hmm. but it's very trashy, mm-hmm. and there's a plot line about Sonny having a massive dick, mm-hmm. which is only really hinted at in the films. Yep. <laughs> and, it's not, and like, there's just lots of stuff in it where you look at it and you think, this isn't really necessary to the story that's been told. And Mario Puzo himself basically said that he wrote The Godfather because he was tired of being a starving artist and he wanted to feed his family. Yeah. So he wasn't really trying that hard. And I feel like Francis Ford Coppola really kind of took something out of the kind of the morass of hastily written genre shits mm-hmm. and created, you know, a masterpiece out of it. Yeah, he took a kind of a pulpy source material and, you know, made a film about... Family and mm. uh, kind of honour and loyalty uh, from that kind of uh, kind of unassuming beginning. Something good happened. Um, Mash is a good kind of shout. Yeah, um, Mash is a book written by Richard Hooker, um, which is very good. Then was adapted into a screenplay by Ring Lardner Jr., one of the Hollywood ten or nine, one of the people who are blacklisted. Yeah. Um, and then made into a film from that script, which used none of the script whatsoever. <laughs> it was all improvised. 
Um, and uh, it's a great example of taking a source material and a feel and making a film out of it that is not literal, um, but still... Well, and Ring Lardner was very upset about it when they did it, but he accepted the Oscar gladly for Best Screenplay, even though not much of his work was actually said on screen. Yeah, uh, another example... Again, like The Lord of the Rings, it's kind of close, because I think both works are very, very good in their own respective ways, but I think that Stanley Kubrick did a much better job with The Shining than Stephen King did. Mm-hmm. I think, Although Stephen King refuses to believe that and keeps making his own versions. Yeah, mm-hmm. but um, the film version of The Shining is, for me, one of the scariest films ever made. I think it's got a great atmosphere. I think it's visually one of the most compelling works of horror ever created. Mm-hmm. Um I think that it gets at a lot of the themes of the books without having to really dig into the details too much. I think that King, even though he is a great storyteller, tends to over-explain uh, a lot in terms to hit the nail over the head a lot and mm-hmm. quite can be quite blunt. Whereas I think that um, Kubrick, you know, translate a lot translates a lot of that bluntness into imagery mm-hmm. in a way that really works. And similarly, again. I think that the film version of Under the Skin is a big improvement over the book. I mean, the book is good and fun and it's interesting as a surreal social satire, but um, I don't think I've ever seen a film that so fully replicates um, the kind of discomfort of being alive (laughs) as well as Under the Skin does. Um, Like That's a film that I literally think of once once or twice a day and I think I I very rare I until like talking about it right now I don't think about I thought about the book in the six months since I read it mm. so I think that's a case where uh, someone found source material and was able to create something amazing out of it question from uh, Matt Hudson um, sent via Facebook um why has it become acceptable for cunt to talk in the cinema? That's a great question. And I found a kind of worrying trend um, in kind of modern cinema going in that you are supposed to turn your phone off mm. in the film, but the adverts leading up to the film are now starting to encourage you to get your phone out. Um, right. In Cineworld and Odeon and other kind of cinema chains, there are like games you can play along with on your phone. Um, that play in the when the trailers are going up, and uh, you get your phone up and you kind of uh, kind of fire up the app or whatever, and you play along. And I'm like, well, you're trying to engage an audience that are through kind of uh, mobile telephone technology, which is you know de rigueur today. But why are you doing it in an environment where people are supposed to be turning their phones off? Mm. Um, and it only encourages people to leave them on, which encourages people to get bored and encourages people to talk, and encourages people to not watch the film, which has always happened. Um, but I feel like things like this um, uh, advertising campaign is kind of making people get less tolerant of it. Yeah. Um, and it's just kind of bizarre. I mean, I am I will go to the art house in Ryan Sheffield um, because I know that audiences are slightly more um, kind of respectful of the film even though I've seen some of the most egregious behaviour at those cinemas, at film festivals, yeah. <laughs> uh, people replying to emails or openly chatting about whether a film's good or not in front of the director who sat kind of behind, uh, in front of them or behind them. Um, 
but yeah, I'm I'm kind of very worried about where this is going. Mm. Um, and I've seen people, even at Jurassic World the other day, I, there was someone sat uh, on their own uh, and were just on their phone for the entire film and walked out with 20 minutes to go. I didn't really understand what they were doing or why mm. they were even there. Um, but yeah, it's it's rife and I don't really know what there is to do to combat it. Yeah, I think one of the explanations that gets bandied around is that people are used to watching stuff at home and they kind of treat the cinematic experience as an extension of watching a film in their own living room. Mm. I think there is kind of a truth to that and the use of phones and the, the, the willingness to talk. But like some of the worst behaviour I've ever seen is from people in their 60s and 70s who just kind of talk throughout. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a case of general rudeness. Yeah. Um, and and the uh, inability of cinemas to crack down on it or mm-hmm. the unwillingness of cinemas to crack down on it. I know that when I worked at the showroom, a big problem was that you just didn't have the ushers. Like, we had four screens, and sometimes I was the only person working all four of them. Mm-hmm. And, like, if you're the only person, you can't really enforce politeness or a way or anything that would make things as nice as possible for everyone involved. And if that's a four-screen cinema that has fairly respectful patrons, I think it, at a multiplex where you're horribly understaffed, as most are, then... It's got to be far worse. Mm. I think unless you're going to have like an usher in every screen who can go there and like tell people to shut the fuck up, yeah, um, then there's not really any way of 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 countering it, and that you just going to end up in a situation where everyone just watches films at home because the cinematic experience has become just so unpleasant. I would say that um, swift bloody violence is the uh, the only language that some people. Um, understand. Although that joke is probably in quite poor taste, given that, like you know, last year, someone was talking in a cinema and a dude turned around and kind of shot him. Yeah. Um, um, which Pete, I actually saw people on Twitter commending, and I'm like, fucking seriously. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, just drop a like a, you know, throw him some stink eye, throw some shade. Yeah. Um, don't uh, don't shoot someone. That's crazy. Um, but yeah, so don't shoot anyone. I was being flippant, and I shouldn't have been. Um, Right, last few questions now. Um, When will they stop making The Simpsons, asked Lewis. Uh, I think they will stop it when the sun explodes. Um, No, I think the only impediment at this point to The Simpsons uh, being continuing the made is either the profitability of the show or the uh, cast being live. Yeah, um, I think their willingness to replace Harry Shearer shows that the second one is not that much of an impediment. But I think that, like, if Dan Castellaneta stopped wanting to do the show, or or, or Heaven Forfend, you know, passed away, it'd be very hard to replace him. Mm-hmm. Less so Yardley Smith because she only voices one character. But um, I think that short. But even that, you know, Mel they replaced Mel Blanc when, you know, they needed new Louis Tune voices. Mm-hmm. Um, unless the show becomes, as was joked about the show nearly 20 years ago about this point, that until the show becomes unprofitable, I'm not sure it will ever actually end. Yeah, yeah, that's the issue. People will still, you're only encouraging them because it hasn't been good for, it soon will be not good for longer than it was good. I think we're way past are we, that. Are we point. way past it, are we? Yeah, I've I think kind of it's not about, kept, kept up as much recently. I think it's probably, I think it's probably 
uh, how long has it been going now? Nearly 26 years. I think we've got like maybe eight or nine classic seasons, five or six absolutely dire, Menadia, and then everything since then has been just kind of a leveling off of mediocrity with occasional spikes. Mm-hmm. But I think we're way past the tipping point where there are more bad episodes of The Simpsons than there are good. Mm, not a good place to be. What's the best fight scene in films, asks uh, Rob Miles on Facebook. Um, best, possibly, um, the ladder fight scene in uh, Once Upon a Time in China mm-hmm. is uh, the Sweetheart film is an amazing scrap. Um, if anyone wants to kind of uh, watch and see how uh, the Eastern approach to action uh, is done, uh, kind of long kind of takes um shot in kind of like long shots so you can see everything much like they used to shoot a musical so you can see the feet and see the whole body in the performance um you should watch that because it's pretty fucking awesome um my favorite probably the fight between rowdy roddy piper and keith david and they live <laughs> which is a fight between two out of shape people um done badly um for about 15 minutes <laughs> uh, and it is brilliant uh it's i could watch that for days it's fantastic. In a similar vein, I think uh, the end of Drunken Master 2, I believe, is probably one of the absolute best fight scenes ever choreographed. Mm-hmm. It's Jackie Chan at his absolute peak, um, physically and as a director, uh, particularly, and, and it all takes place in a furnace of some sort. I forget the reason why they're in a furnace, but essentially it's an opportunity for people to dodge out of the way of flaming things mm-hmm. all the time and it's very, very funny and it's incredibly well choreographed and just um, hugely enjoyable. Uh, I, I am a huge fan of uh, Stephen Chow and uh, Kung Fu Hustle in particular. Mm-hmm. I think that the um, first huge fight in that where the Axe Gang attack the denizens of the um, kind of slum and three Kung Fu Masters have revealed themselves is uh, the most joyous fight scene I've ever seen because it's just three guys who are just amazing at what they do fighting off hordes of people I think that that and they do it in a way that is both exciting and funny which is a very difficult balance to do mm. I think that that for me is one of the ones that every time that film's on, I will watch it. I usually watch it all the way through because it's just really entertaining, but that's the part of it that just kind of almost leaves me with tears in my eyes because of how just kind of gloriously wonderful it is. Um, In terms of worst fights, um, I'll always come back to um, Anakin versus uh, Obi-Wan in Revenge of the Sith, Um, the lightsaber fight that lasts... Four and a half years, um, <laughs> which is kind of once you've got past what they're doing uh, in terms of what the fight actually means between those two characters and what is built up through three films and plus having background knowledge of another three films that take place after that fight, um, it is just a escalating series of ridiculous locations and mm. highly choreographed, meaningless action which at times is kind of indecipherable and for most of its uh, I think it's actually 45 minutes it runs for is uh, just incredibly dull now on a similar level the worst by far for me would be the big fight scene that takes up a big chunk of Transformers Revenge Revenge of the Fallen mm-hmm. where 
It's a fight in a forest between Optimus Prime and A.N. of a robot. Metal man. Uh, And it goes on for a really long time. And then it ends with Optimus Prime dying, briefly. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it happens so quickly that you don't realise it's happened. And, like, it's played... There's no emotional payoff. There's no sense that it's a serious thing that's happened. Even though the hero of the whole thing has just been rammed through the chest with, like, a big sword or whatever... And that, to me, is just the epitome of terrible action because it's not just that it's visually incoherent and it's just ugly to actually sit down and watch. The fact that there is no emotional component to it mm-hmm. is just awful. Yeah. Speaking of incoherent, awful, and hard to don't kind of stomach, um, we've kind of run quite long on this, but we're going to get to our last question now. Um, it is from Rory, friend of the show. Uh, who asks us straight up, he begins, because he's not messing around, uh, who should host the Oscars in 2016? I've got a funny feeling we're both going to say the same thing. Should we count down three, two, one, then say it? Okay. Ready? Three, three two, two, one. Polar and Faye. Oh, I was going to say The Rock. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> uh, well, they're both are good. Yeah, I'd go for all three of them. There was a, an Oscars in the 80s which was hosted by Goldie Hawn, Paul Hogan and Chevy Chase. Wow. So why not The Rock plus uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler? I would I would totally be up for that. Uh, I think they're all great. I mean, obviously, Fey and Poehler have the experience mm-hmm. because they were... They've got chops. They basically made the Golden Globes watchable for three years. Yeah. Uh, and they, I think they are... Unless the enormity of the event kind of crushed them in the same way that it did Neil Patrick Harris, mm-hmm. um, I think they could do a really great job. I think also The Rock is one of those guys who just has the most natural and wonderful charisma. You know, he's just in, in, eminently watchable, and his brief talk on this year's Oscars, where he was just basically on stage with Zoe Saldana for about two minutes, was just really funny, and he just kind of made something out of nothing. I think he he just has a lot of uh, the components necessary to be a really good, fun Oscar host. Mm. And also, I think that there's a lot of uh, humour to be gained just from the fact that he has the most insane physicality uh, of any actor working today. And his name is The Rock as well. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, that would be a good choice. Uh, Sure. Um, and he should kind of drop the people's elbow on at least <laughs> one, anyone who goes over the allotted time on their speech. So like some guy's gone up and kind of overdone it on best sound was, editing. Yeah, I was going to sound editing. <laughs> God, we're so hard on the sound editors. Uh, I don't know what that is. But yeah, um, that's that, it. We, that vampire looking guy, the one for the hot look. Yeah, yeah, that guy. Um, yeah, that's it. We, we've answered your questions. You've asked them and we've, we've answered them. Um, um, I hope that like those answers have satisfied uh, your lust for knowledge. Um, it certainly satisfied my lust for questions. But yeah, I've enjoyed our 100 episodes so far. Um, most of them are recorded while I'm kind of semi-conscious at like uh, 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning. Um, so it's nice to actually do one where Ed is semi-conscious from jet lag, um, which is uh, nice to have the shoe on the other foot. Uh, I'd like to personally thank Ed. Um, for all his hard work on the show uh, like I said I'm a terrible editor of this I, I'm very I always find something else to do I will procrastinate to the point of well not doing anything <laughs> useful um, which is kind of what procrastinating is and Ed is very much like he'll get it done he'll be up the next day um, so the fact that we're here at episode 100 is down to you Ed oh thank you um, so thank you very much 
I'd also like to thank Nick Bowden, who uh, is a very talented uh, young gentleman who did our logo, uh, which is nice and uh, looks all good in that. Um, and all our listeners, who do you want to thank, Ed? I thank, like, thank you for asking me to do this show from the uh, the beginning. Yeah. Uh, back when uh, I think you were looking for rotating hosts. Yes, um, possibly. Uh, and just having me back to the point where you couldn't get rid of me. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is fixture. That's that's kind of I think how most of my friendships go. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of at a certain point people yeah. just think you did ask me to come round. I'm now not leaving. <laughs> it's too much effort to get rid of you at this point. But mm. definitely thank you for uh, you know asking me to do the show initially and continue on a bit and letting me edit it, mm-hmm. which uh, has been immensely fun for me uh, and just kind of as a way of uh, developing skills editing, which is something I kind of did a little bit at uni when I did rate student radio, but never really did that much um i'd like to thank all my friends who have listened to the show i i had like you say i met a bunch of them in the pub earlier today and it was uh really nice to have a conversation with people saying like oh yeah when you said on the show like the other week mm. you know, like there's something just very nice about that of knowing that people listen yeah uh, so i like to thank them and everyone who is you know, discovered the show and listened to it over the last four years and hundred episodes. Mm. You know, the public is opening themselves up to us and we're touching them. That's yeah. what we're saying. Yeah. Um, and uh, we'll go on touching them <laughs> until <laughs> they've had enough or they can't take any more. Um, so we'll, uh, normal uh, broadcasting will resume uh, from next week. Um, our shows will get back under an hour, I promise. <laughs> um, and until then... It is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.